Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Father, would you open the word to us and give us soft hearts, eyes that see and ears that hear. Oh, Lord, we love you. Lord, we love you. And we want to hear from you. You are our our teacher. You are our master. We are your disciples. So I pray for the grace to let you speak in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 8. Jesus is in Jerusalem. This is the literally the final six months before he will be crucified. He's probably October. We've just gone through the Feast of Booths. Jesus went down to Jerusalem during this feast and began to minister publicly. He didn't participate in the feast, but he ministered to the crowds that came to Jerusalem uh, during that Feast of Booths. Uh, then we saw uh, the, the following day, which is called Simcha Torah. And on that day, a woman caught in the act of adultery was brought to him. And uh, you remember that wonderful Dialogue, And then the next day, Jesus is, is preaching again in the temple. Where is he? he? He's right in what's called the court of the women. Uh, in the temple itself, there's this huge outer court where Gentiles and everybody can be. Just in the, it's a big, actually it's 37 acres. You want to know how big this is? 37 acres of flat stone. So when I say it's a big court, I'm saying big court. And uh, then the, inside that was the temple complex itself. You've got two main sections. You've got the court of the women and the court of Israel. court of Israel, the priests are in, and the men can line the walls once in a while, but not often. So it's, most of the action is in what's called the court of the women. And uh, so he's there, and he's got around him a crowd of, of people, but many of them are religious leaders. By that I mean they're priests, priestly caste. They are Pharisees, which would be what we might call our ultra-Orthodox uh, today. They're um, very astute in the word. They're very committed to the word. Uh, they're there, the leaders of that. They're listening to him. Uh, there's been an, a, a plan. It's very dangerous. They want to kill him. I mean, the top leaders do, particularly Caiaphas and Annas, the high priests. They want to kill him, and they're trying to look for an opportunity for this. But there's a lot of these sewn into this crowd. In the course of his, of his preaching, he has presented himself. He, they challenged him and they, they said, you're just an ambitious rabbi. You're just climbing to the top. That, that's what you're doing. And he says, I'll tell you how you'll know who I am. When you lift me up on a cross, when you watch how I die, you will know that I do nothing but what I see the Father. And I speak nothing but what I hear him speak. You'll know then. And John, the, the writer of the gospel, makes a remarkable observation at that point. He says, and many believed in him. Many believed in him. Do you remember the crowd I just described? Many of these believed in him. So we've got the power of God moving. This is a remarkable moment. In this crowd, something happened and people, you've got priests. And by the way, we know many priests would go on to believe in him. Uh, we've, got, we've got probably the ultra-Orthodox, the Pharisees. We've got, we've got these... Many of them are going, no, you're, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. We, we, we believe. But others did not. It's, it's, it's really funny. When the God moves, they're either in or out. People either draw in or they, or, or they, or they, they go the other way. It, it, it's, it's, it pushes and it pulls. It, the presence of God does both. And uh, to the ones who, who responded to him, you remember we saw that two weeks ago. He, he says to them, he says, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Uh, what did we see? They, he was promising freedom from what? Somebody please say sin. Thank you. Sin. Yeah, yeah. Just, I just need to know you're listening. Okay. So he says, uh, I, I, you will know the truth. So to these, to these very observant Jews who have been trying to keep Torah, he says, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free from sin. And, and, the, and Paul has described that a Pharisee's experience with the Torah. He says, I, the more I tried to do the right thing, the more I did the wrong thing. And you remember all this? He says, good news, good news. 
I, I, I'm going to teach you a truth. And what was the truth? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's power and life in that. He has come to set us free. Not just forgive us. Remember this? Forgiveness is good news, but it's not the best news. You don't want to just keep losing jobs, hurting your family, uh, saying stupid things, uh, wasting time, losing your calling. You don't want to keep doing that. No. And, and be, well, I'm forgiven. Nice. But you've left a wake of havoc. The better news is he's set us free. Free from doing the things that need to be forgiven. He's actually brought power so I can walk out of my addictions. I can walk out of my temper. I can walk out of my lust. I can walk out of this junk. And I can be the man, the woman God's called me to be. Now I start to live. That's what he said to those who believe. Now he turns to those who did not believe. And he says what we're going to look at today. Verse 37. He says to them, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Would you say that? If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. We'll see more about that. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. Now, that is a very interesting statement, and we'll look at what that means in a minute. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. Uh, we have one father, God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. The father sent me. I do what he shows me to do. I speak what he says, tells me to speak. If you loved him, you'd love me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. You want to do, you desire to do his desires, the devil's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. All right, let's, let's turn to our text. Making room for truth. Human hearts are not all the same. They vary widely. Some are so full of desires for the things of this world, there is little room left for the desire for God. When truth comes and knocks on the door of that heart, it finds no place to lodge. There is no interest, no welcome, no sense of need for that truth. That heart is already full. It's full of longing for other things, but not for more of God. Other hearts are not as full of desires for the things of this world. There is still an interest to find answers to the important questions. There is sense of need, an honest awareness of feeling empty, of being poor in spirit, of sensing that there must be more to life than this. When truth comes to that heart, it finds room. There is interest. There is a welcome. There is enough humility to investigate a new idea, to listen to a challenge, to consider something that will require change. This is what Jesus was trying to explain to people who wanted to kill him. He was showing them why his words made no sense to them. He said the problem was that he was speaking truth. Had he lied about God and told them things they wanted to hear, they would have believed, but because he told them the truth about God, they didn't believe. Isn't that interesting? The fact is, they would, of course, go on and execute Jesus. But within a few years, men would arise who called themselves the Messiah and would tell them what they wanted to hear. Pick up a sword. We're going to fight the Romans. Here we go. You know, saying the stuff they wanted to hear. How did it work? 
it ended up in that horrible uh, massacre of Israel by the, by the Romans in 66 to 70 AD. Uh, it was following a, a Messiah that up this thing came and, and we began to rebel again, against uh, uh, Rome and all that. And then you had, what, 500,000 people killed up in the Galilee. You, you had a, a million and a half in Judea and Jerusalem. I think Josephus says a million one hundred thousand uh, died in the siege of Jerusalem. How many did I say? A million people. I mean, oh, you don't even want to, want to discuss that. I mean, that is an appalling uh, number of slaughtered people. Because they followed a, a person who told them a lie. Who told them a lie. The one who told them the truth, they didn't hear. He says, and this is because, he's talking, remember, to the group who's rejected him. The group who wants to kill him. He says, you are deceived by the devil. And, you're, and when I speak the truth, you can't hear it. When somebody speaks a lie to you, you hear it. You've, 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 you've crossed a very serious line. What Jesus teaches in this passage helps us understand why some hearts are hard and some are soft. But his words contain a warning even to those of us who are already believers. We too need to guard our hearts. Wrong desires push out the desire for truth. But thankfully, the desire for truth can also push out wrong desires. So each of us has a choice. If we want more truth, we have to make room for it. Let's learn how. Many in the crowd believed in Jesus, including some of the religious leaders, but others didn't. And even though John doesn't comment on this, apparently those who didn't believe in Jesus reacted to that moment by growing even more determined to kill him. Knowing this, Jesus exposed the reason for their hatred by saying, I know that you are a seed of Abraham, but you seek to kill me because my word finds no place for itself in you. I was really surprised when I saw the Greek. It's a word I, I, I virtually didn't, I mean, I know it in another form, but I didn't know this. It's a word that means make room. He said, my word, when it comes, finds no room in your heart. Isn't that interesting? There's no place. It's like the, 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 the word is knocking on the door of the heart and there's no room inside. And, and he goes on to explain it's your, that because your heart is packed full of wrong desires. So you've got this heart packed full of wrong desires. So when truth comes, there's no place. It finds no place to come into that heart. That's the way he pictures it. In effect, he told them that they were so full of pride and hatred that the truth he was preaching could find no entry into their hearts. There was no place left for humility, repentance, or even an honest discussion. So while some of the leaders believed, others thought of murder. Then Jesus explained that the reason they reacted to him so violently was because they had been recruited into an ancient spiritual battle. They were being controlled by the devil, Satan, and the devil had always hated God. It was not really Jesus they hated. It was the Father who sent him. And the reason they hated the Father was because they too had a father, but their father wasn't God. At that point in the discussion, he had not yet openly identified their spiritual father, which made it possible for them to misunderstand him. They replied, our father is Abraham. And by saying this, they were probably thinking of themselves as the rightful recipients of the blessings promised to Abraham. Not simply affirming that they were his physical descendants. Jesus responded to their claim uh, with a challenge. If you are children of Abraham, do the works of Abraham. If they truly look to Abraham as their example, then they should respond to the truth he was presenting to them with the same humility and faith as Abraham had done. Then Jesus said this, but now you seek to kill me. A man who has spoken the truth to you, which I heard from, and the, the, the preposition he uses is, is beside or in the presence of God. This Abraham did not do. Say, this Abraham did not do. Isn't that an odd statement? What on earth did he mean by that? His words imply that he had personally spoken to Abraham. If we look back at the life of Abraham, we soon discover that God spoke to Abraham on numerous occasions. But on one occasion, a person appearing as a man, whom Moses repeatedly identifies as Yahweh. You, you, uh, uh, it's, there's no question who the Bible says is this person. You've got one man, uh, one person, and then two angels. Remember this? 
Angels are specifically identified as angels. And at least four times, five times, yeah, uh, maybe it's more, I, but I looked, I, I read through in the Hebrew, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. It's Yahweh who walked into the camp. It is nobody else. He says it over and over again. So Yahweh walks into the camp and whom Abraham addresses as the judge of all the earth came to Abraham's camp at Hebron. And that person accompanied by two angels ate a meal and spoke to both Abraham and Sarah. He promised them a child, but he also brought troubling news. He would destroy the city where their nephew Lot lived. Abraham bargained with God in an attempt to save Sodom, but he received the warning respectfully. By saying that Abraham didn't reject him when he spoke to him, Jesus may be indicating that he, in his pre-incarnate state, was that person, Yahweh, who visited Abraham's camp. Taken literally, Jesus' words mean here that the Son of God, as the Son of God, Jesus was active in the Old Testament, and that is exactly what John declares in the opening portion of his gospel. In fact, as this dialogue goes on, it's going to conclude with this statement. Jesus says, before Abraham was what? I am. How did they respond? Those who hate it picked up stones to stone him. Blasphemy. You see it? There is no question who Jesus declares himself to be. I mean, we're, he's literally revealing that the, 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 the person, this human form that we keep encountering through the Old Testament, the one who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, etc., was the pre-incarnate son. I believe the father has always, through his son, uh, communicated. That's why he calls him the word. He's the word he speaks to us. He's the way he communicates with us. Well, they heard that too. Uh, and that's exactly what he meant. If it were possible to confuse something, Jesus said, then invariably that is how his opponents interpreted his words. And Jesus will now explain that there is a spiritual reason for this. To expose the cause of this confusion, he began by asking them a question. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? And then immediately he answered his own question. He said it was, be it was because you cannot hear my word. Some influence was at work which prevented them from being able to understand what he was saying. And that influence was the devil. Satan had taken control of their minds by lying to them. But they could not claim to be innocent victims. They had fallen under Satan's control because they desired the same things he desired. Jesus said, you wish to do the desires of your father. And what are the devil's desires? Jesus exposes two of them and says they are a fundamental part of Satan's character. The first is murder. He says from the beginning, that one was a murderer. We have no way of knowing all that the words from the beginning mean but Jesus is clearly pointing to an event in the distant past, certainly before the creation of humans. Why would I say that? How do I know Satan had already had his problem before the creation of humans? Oh, come on. There was somebody in the garden. Huh? Here are the brand new created humans, and here's Lucifer. In the, in the form of Satan. He's already present. Whatever this means, it's happened in the primal past. It's, there's, some, there's things we don't know. Therefore, nothing could be more natural. Pardon me, Satan's nature is to murder whatever or whoever's alive, especially those who belong to God. And therefore, nothing could be more natural for him than to want to kill Jesus. And because these opponents shared with the devil this same desire, they too wanted to kill Jesus. They had fallen under the devil's control so completely they were no longer able to comprehend God's truth. To this group of human opponents, Jesus had said, my word has no place in you. Now when describing the devil, he said something similar. He said, and that one has not stood in the truth. Now I know yours translates it differently, but that is, that is the translation. I'm not, uh, I don't know why they do, don't translate it. Isn't it interesting? He said, that one, the devil, has not stood in the truth. In other words, at one point in time, Satan was in the truth. Now, now think back. Who is Satan? It's Lucifer. What, what, what was his position? He's an archangel, an angel of light. He was created to serve God. He has not always been in this condition. At some point, he rebelled. Isn't it interesting God gives even 
the angel's free will. I mean, so far from the idea that God is a God who, who, who gives no free will, it's just ludicrous. He even allows his angels. The Bible will say in a place that, that, that apparently a third of the angels followed Lucifer in his rebellion. And this forms the whole thing of demons. This is what, what, what you have. So Jesus actually in his language says he has not stood in the truth. He didn't stay there. But the desires filled his heart. Woo. And he left. Just as there was no room in the hearts of these men for truth, at some point in the ancient past, the devil's heart had ceased to have room for truth. Jesus seems to be describing a process by which truth is squeezed out of a heart as wrong desires fill it. At, at, and once truth has been completely squeezed out, unless those, desi those desires change, no place is left for truth to enter. The, de the devil lies because the truth is not in him, and the truth is not in him because he's full of wrong desires. And the most wicked desire of all is its desire to oppose God. Because God is holy and pure, the devil must lie to convince others to reject him. Therefore, he is a liar and the father of lies. Then Jesus made a remarkable observation. He said, and because I say the truth, you do not believe me. He's pointing to the fact that liars become self-deceived. They become so confused that when they hear truth, they think it's a lie. And when they hear lies, they think it's truth. Have you ever met people like that? If you tell them the truth, they're sure you're lying. People who are lying to them, they believe every word they say. It's like, whoa, what happened? It's literally a spiritual bondage. In other words, Jesus is telling his opponents that if he had lied to them about God, they would have believed him. But since he told them the truth, they don't. To understand what Jesus was saying, the first thing we have to define, to do is define the word truth. It's an age-old question. What is truth? Yet the Bible has an answer to that question. Truth is the knowledge that God reveals to us. Truth is the knowledge that God reveals to us. Say that. Truth is the knowledge that God reveals to us. He is the source of all truth. So there is a distinct difference between truth and facts. Facts are accurate pieces of information which humans can gather for themselves. But truths are facts as seen through God's eyes. You might say a truth is a fact with meaning. We, are not, we see not only the fact, but how that fact fits in to God's plan. Does that make sense? In other words, there's all kinds of things where God gives truth. And he's, and he's, but when, we, when we, truth comes from him, he reveals. So he, we can even have a scientific fact. But God shows us how it fits into his great plan for creation. We, we see it in a different context. Truth is different than facts. Facts are observed, but truths are revealed. Facts are measured, but truths are believed. And believing requires faith, which in turn requires humility and trust. Before a person can receive a truth, he or she has to admit to not knowing it. Then that person has to trust that God does and believe what he says. And every time we believe what he says, it always requires obedience. And that obedience always comes at a high price. So you see, truth has got a different nature to it. That's why when we talk about truth as a broad concept, we all, we all say we want it. But when confronted by a specific truth from God, by re receiving it is much more difficult. Something has to leave that heart in order for truth to enter. A wrong desire has to die and give place to the desire for more of God. I heard this illustration from Tom Ferguson. He was our superintendent when Mary and I first moved up here to Washington, pastored in Everett. Um, he's passed away now, a man I love dearly. He said, you know, you, when you go to the ball game and you want a Coke, he says, you know, you, you, you order that Coke. And he says, the, the first thing they do is they take the cup and they scoop it full of ice. And I fill it right to the top, actually, if you, if you let them. And you scoop it right on up. And then he says, you, you put the Coke in. And he says, now, if you wanted more Coke, what, what would you have to do? Get rid of the ice. Yeah, take the ice out. And he says, so when we want more of God... What do we have to do? Get rid of the stuff that fills the heart. You see it? Yeah. It isn't you say, I want more of God. Well, then get rid of the desires for the world. Oh. 
Oh. Hmm. Let me think a minute. You see this? The issue, he says, truth found no room because the heart was packed with the desires for the world. Literally the same kinds of desires, for pride, ambition, whatever, that the devil has. My heart fills with that kind of junk. So if I want more of God, I've got to clean that heart. If I want to hear truth, I have to tend to this thing first. I have to get that out. Abraham's children. In this debate, there is much discussion about Abraham. Jesus' opponents pointed to the fact that they were Abraham's physical descendants and therefore heirs of his promises. Jesus pointed to the fact that Abraham was a man whose heart made room for truth and challenged them to be like Abraham. He wanted them to receive truth the way their ancestor had. He said, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. So what were the deeds of Abraham? Let's review some of the truths God spoke to that man and watch how he responded and recognized the price he paid. Number one, the truth. God has a plan for me. Would you say that? What was Abraham's response? He let God lead him away from his home and family, though he didn't know where God was taking him. Can you see? (laughs) Here's the truth. God has plans for me. Yes. (laughs) Abraham was a wealthy man. He was was one of three sons of, of a wealthy family that lived in Ur of the Chaldees. That would be down by the Persian Gulf today. It's the, the, the ruins are still there of the city uh, in what is today Iraq. Um, it's, it's, it's evident the family is very wealthy. The city itself and the, and the, and the culture is a moon-worshipping culture. This is, this is absolutely a pagan city. With, and here's the son of a, of a wealthy family who is not a Jew. They don't exist yet in that sense. He's not a Jew. He's just a guy. And so here he is in this situation, and somehow God whispers to his heart and says, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you uh, children. Now I'll make you the father of many, a great multitude. I'm going to give you a land. And I'm going to give, make you, you, and through your children, I'm going to make you a great blessing to the entire earth, spiritually. But, here's the deal. I need you to leave here. I got to get you out of this culture. I got to get you out of this world uh, that you're living in and take you out. Where are we going? I'll tell you when we get there. Now, now think of the price. Think of what the man's doing. And may I add, Sarah, his, his new wife, he's got to convince her. And she could so easily have said, he's crazy, I'm staying. She did not. Sarah went with him. She's right in the game. So these two people march up the Euphrates River. Where are we going? I don't know, but we've got water. You know? And, and, and up we went. We're wandering. Would you do that? Would you leave the wealth, the security, the status, the absolute everything is set for you? Would you walk out on it to nothing? Not knowing even where you're going? That's the price. Truth comes at a price. You want more of God? Leave. Move out of this. Number two, the truth. God's faithfulness continues from generation to generation. Would you say that? God's faithfulness continues from generation to generation. What was Abraham's response? He believed promises he would not see fulfilled in his lifetime. A land, a multitude of children, And a spiritual blessing to the whole earth. When the Lord spoke that to him, was he 75 years old the first time? How old was he when he first finally had his son of promise? He's a 99 or 100. I I, I taught this, you'd think I'd know. It's one of the two. That's That's a long wait. When he died, he did not see with his eyes one of those promises fulfilled. 
Not only did he not have a multitude, he, he had one son of promise, and I think he had, I don't know, six, seven sons. Yeah, all together in his old age. That's no multitude. It's not a bad family, but it's no multitude. He had to believe that somehow that would turn into a multitude. How much of the land did he own? I mean, this was his land. He says, I give you this land as far as you can see it. Yeah. How much land was his? Well, he had, no, he had a little bit. Think about it. He had a cave he'd purchased so he could bury Sarah. No, he owned a plot of land. Enough to bury his wife and himself and a few of his children and a grandchild. That's how much land he had. Hebrews says, this man died waiting for the promises. You hear that? Truth can come. What, what is the price? He had to endure in faith for an entire lifetime. How many of you are standing in faith for a long time for your promise? Welcome to Abraham's world. Number three, God can do the impossible. Say that. What was Abraham's response? He and Sarah believed that God would rejuvenate their old bodies so they could conceive a child. Now, Paul in Romans 4 says he, Abraham looked at his body as good as dead. I mean, that's, <laughs> somebody came up and said, oh, they had kids in old age. I said, well, Paul says he was good as dead. Uh, and, and, and the author of Hebrews, who some of us know, uh, <laughs> He says, he says that, that Abraham and, and, his, and Sarah was, were beyond the age of children. So th picture this. These two old people have to believe that God will miraculously rejuvenate their bodies, their organs. This, think of what Sarah does. I mean, she has to, she, she's completely in the process. She has to have so much faith that God will take her old body and rejuvenate her organs till she's a young woman inside. And this is a woman who's not been able to conceive children anyway. So she has to believe in not only that he makes you younger again, but somehow able to conceive. Anybody want to join this process? <laughs> Abraham has to do the same. He has to believe. How long did they wait for that to happen. 25 years. When truth comes. When truth comes. Because the truth is. God will do miracles. But they, they, had, they had to contend for that. For 25 years. How did it work? They conceived their child. I mean it is it's stunning. And Abraham went on to have more children. Price, they had to wait 25 years and had to fight against discouragement. Number four, the truth. God's judgment is always just. Say that. God's judgment is always just. Abraham's response, he welcomed God into his camp. We saw this earlier. And trusted that he would protect the righteous who lived in Sodom. When, 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 when the Lord, Yahweh, came into the camp, he said to him, now when one, you're, uh, you're going to have a child, but the other is, he said, and I am going to judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They are, their wickedness has risen up before me. I'm going to destroy them. Problem, his nephew lives there. His nephew lives in the, in the city of Sodom. And so what did Abraham do to this negative truth that was brought to him? Did he, did he reject it? No, he respected it, but he bargained. <laughs> That's okay. Ha <laughs> ha. Hallelujah. Uh, he, he says, uh, will not the judge of all the earth do rightly? He'll not destroy the, the righteous with the wicked, will he? He begins to argue justice with the, with the, with, with the Lord himself. And, and the Lord doesn't go, how dare you talk back to me? He says, how about 50? If there are 50 there, so I'll, 50, I'll spare it. 45? Do I hear 30? Do I? <laughs> And, and he bargains it down. What's the final number he bargains it down to? Ten, Ten which, the, which uh, Hebrews call, uh, call a minion, which becomes the basis for a synagogue now. Ten, ten adult men. Why? Because they can spare a city. How many, how many Christians does it take to spare a city? Two. <laughs> Thank you. I had not thought of that, but you're right on. How many Christians? Now, look, we can look at the problems, but how many true righteous believers are there in our nation? Put it in the perspective of the judge of the, all the earth, and he's with us. 
We have a right to claim that he spare us and that he do a work. Amen? Amen. Amen. Number five, God can raise the dead to life. Say that. Abraham's response, he was willing to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah because he believed God would bring his son back to life. That is an amazing moment. Truth comes. And it's a horrible message. I want you to do this. And he takes him to Mount Moriah and he has the knife in the air and he's processed through this. Can you imagine the agony of this for Abraham? And he was willing to do it. But he was only willing to do it for one reason. And Hebrews tells us that. For he believed in a God who raises the dead to life. How many of you and I believe in a God who can raise the dead to life? How many are counting on that for your own resurrection? Amen? Paul teaches that, that, that Abraham, in Romans 4... Abraham is believing in the resurrection. He had this. You watch God walk Abraham through the same faith you and I have to have. I mean, literally, he's laying hold. And, for, and, that, and then when, when, when the Lord uh, held his hand and said, uh, don't, don't do it, he showed him a ram caught in the thicket. And Abraham sacrificed the ram in that place, which is Mount Moriah, where the temple today is. And, and he sacrificed it. And then the... Abraham named that place Jehovah-Jireh, which means what? God will provide, and it doesn't mean a car. He, he, it, it says, it, Jehovah-Jireh, for the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice of his own in this mountain. Within hundreds of yards, Jesus Christ was crucified. Abraham's son was spared. The father's son was not. Number six, it is possible to live with God forever after we die. Say that. It is possible to live with God forever after we die. What was Abraham's response? Though he was a wealthy man, he lived in this world like a stranger passing through it. People pick up this thing about the blessings of Abraham and they go, oh boy, I'm going to get the blessings of Abraham means I'm going to get rich. Oh, yes. Hebrews says Abraham Yes, he was rich. He had lots of camels and sheep and cattle. He had, he had hundreds in his household. He, I mean, he's got this large, uh, uh, he's a tribal leader. He, he's, a, he's a powerful, wealthy man. And he could care less. His heart, we're told, was set on a city not made with hands, whose builder and maker is God. He longed for eternal life. Abraham has the, the long perspective. He sees this life as quickly passing and eternal life with God as the great reward. So yes, he managed his household. Yes, he led everybody. Yes, he handled things. But his heart wasn't here. He wasn't going, look at how many cattle I got. He's saying, somebody feed the cattle. His heart was set there. Truth. It's possible to live with God forever after we die. What was the price? He gave up his desires for this world. When we review these deeds of Abraham, a pattern emerges. We learn from his example that truth, unlike facts, has to be believed and obeyed. And that obedience is likely to be very costly. When truth comes to the human heart, our minds quickly read the price tag. We realize that if we accept this truth, it will require us to do something difficult. And just as quickly, if there is not a desire in that heart for more of God, we push that truth away. In time, that heart can lose its ability to hear truth at all. That exchange is going on inside of you. It's going on inside of me all the time. Here comes the truth, and it's just a wink of an eye. I have quickly processed the price. And then I... Push it away if I don't want to pay that price. During his, his ministry, Jesus occasionally identified someone as a child of Abraham. When Zacchaeus offered to give generously to the poor and return what he had stolen, Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because he too is what? A son of Abraham. Now he's saying, here's a man with faith who responds to truth. Like Abraham did. When a woman who had suffered for 12 years passed through a crowd to touch the hem of his garment, he said, 
daughter. And he does, he's not, this is not a term he uses, hey, little daughter. Uh, this, he, he didn't talk that way. When he says daughter, the full phrase is daughter of Abraham. Daughter of Abraham. Your faith has made you well. In each case, that person heard truth and was willing to pay the price to receive it. She, in her weakness, pressed through the crowd, just as Abraham and Sarah had done. Abraham moments. To know truth, God's truth, is a choice. To receive it, we have to make room for it and keep it. To keep it, we have to vigilantly guard against losing it. And what is it that clogs our hearts and prevents truth from entering? Or squeezes out the truth that's there. It's wrong desires. Desires for the things of this world rather than the desire for God. We can become so in love with the wrong things that we have no desire left for the one thing that matters. Eternal life with God. How does someone arrive at that place where that desire is gone? That condition doesn't arrive all at once. It's the result of a multitude of choices. Each time truth comes and came, pardon me, each time truth came and knocked on the door of that heart, a decision was made not to pay the price. And every wrong decision damages that heart further until it becomes very difficult to even understand what God is saying. The fear of obedience has grown strong. And the longing for God has grown weak. Think of the parable the Lord uses with the sower. He has the different kinds of seed. And one of the seed falls among weeds. Remember this? Thorns. Uh, what, are the, what are those thorns? What are the weeds? Deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world. The heart has been, even though this person has, 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 has the gospel, even though this person has responded to the gospel, has become a Christian, they've still allowed their heart to be full of the love of the world or the busyness of the life. They focus their attention, their energy, their time on these things of the world, pursuing money and pursuing the interests of life so that there is no interest in that heart, no room for truth, no, no, no time for it. And what happens to that one? It doesn't say it dies, by the way. It says it bears no fruit. It remains alone, barren. But that terrible condition can be reversed. The solution is to start getting rid of wrong desires. We can ask God to show us where the eye of our heart has focused on something which competes with our love for him. Listen to Jesus. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is also full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. So he's saying, when my eye is clear, light comes in. When my eye is focused, the eye of my heart, in other words, my desires, my interests, my focus, is on the right things, I'm full of light. When I focus that attention, my, my heart is focused on another goal, I'm full of darkness. I have control of this. I have control of this. This isn't predestined. This isn't some sort of, I'm, you know, I'm a victim and I have no, no power over this. I can decide where I put my eyes. What do I want? Do I want more of God? Do I want spiritual fruit? Do I want my life to matter? Do I want to touch others? Or do I want more money, promotions, and, and respect, and stuff? I mean, is that where I spend my time? That's the difference right there. I choose where my eye is focused. In other words, where is our gaze focused? What is it that we're desiring and looking at? And when God points those things out to us, we have an Abraham moment. Will we accept what he says and decide to pay the price? Or will we push his conviction away? I believe the battle for the desires of our heart goes on throughout our lifetime. One desire after another comes along and tries to pull us away from God. But a wise man or woman, a true child of Abraham, will keep choosing to do whatever is necessary to remove anything that tries to come between us and God. And here's what the book of Hebrews says about Abraham's children. Would you read this with me? Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. 
for he has prepared a city for them. I believe God has given us tools to prune our hearts, to keep it from being clogged with the desires of the world. He's given us, he's given us disciplines. Let's, let's think about some of them. If my heart's full of the love of money, the deceitfulness of riches, what has God given to me as a way of dealing with that, uh, with that drive? Tithing. Tithing. Yeah. You don't think so? Try it. <laughs> Every time you write the check or send that gift, uh, there's just a little bit of, wow, hmm, a lot of money. And you give it away. You give it away. You, God doesn't just want to say thank you for your being our source. He says, you trust me? Give it away. It forces us to trust. It makes us walk in a miracle. Many of us are really tight. And so we come to that point where we say, I can't make it. I can't make it on 100%. Why would I have 90? Well, you have to say, God says, if you will give to me, I will be your provider. And then you step into that miracle. And it starts freeing you. You realize, whoa, I'm not my own source. My own effort isn't it. God, he's my provider. I've walked in this for since I was married, before I was married. And it's simply a way of loving. What's another one? How about, how about uh, food or, the, or, the, or, the, or the, the lusts and pressures of my body? What has he given me? Uh, fasting. Exactly. Try it. It's funny. The flesh is all kind of one big lump. So my hunger for food, my lust, my fears, temper, it's all kind of fleshy stuff. And this thing's all connected. And so as I, as what, what happens when I fast, my spirit says to my body, shut up. I'm in charge here. It does. My spirit begins to rule my body. And, and, and I, I, sit, I, I, I have this time with the Lord. And I'm, 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 re I'm resting before him. And I'm subordinating my body. It's a remarkable thing. I, I've done it for years. Just try it. You'll see. I, you don't have to believe me. Just test it. Your whole thing, the whole thing quiets down. Dealing with lust, watch it quiet down when you fast. It just does. Dealing with, dealing with anger, watch it quiet down when you fast. I, I don't fast. Don't, don't, get, don't, get, don't admire me. I, I, I really have a late breakfast. Is, I mean, I, don't, I do not do the long things, but I'll do I'll maybe 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I just start my day and drink, drink tea. And, and, and for me, fasting and prayer go together. I, I don't want to just fast while I work. So I, I'm fasting on a day, my Sabbath, or a quiet day. And I just sit, and boy, it just quiets things down. Another thing, I'll just throw this in for free. Uh, Something strange happens in the way of spiritual authority when you fast. Even the little bit that I'm talking about. The Lord's told me years ago, he said, don't waste your fast. So every time when I come to the end of the fast, however long it's been, I ask myself, Lord, what do you want me to pray for? And I find myself at the end of a fast, not simply praying. I generally find myself addressing with authority things that I had not thought about at all. Something comes up. And I find myself in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I take authority over this. And I can tell we're connecting. You know what I'm saying? I can tell this is, this is working. Uh, something's happening here. And I don't. Remember how Jesus said to his disciples when they couldn't cast that, uh, uh, that boy out of what, uh, that spirit out of what appeared to be an epileptic boy. Uh, we don't know it was epileptic. It was a demon anyway. Uh, but he said, this kind comes out but by prayer and yeah, and I, what's that about? Well, I'm learning what that's about. You can literally fast yourself into spiritual authority. Why? Because you're humbling yourself before God and your spirit's taking control over your flesh. That's enough on that. But uh, how, about, how about the busy person? Uh, you're so full of the, of the cares of this world. Just so busy you don't have time for it. You don't have time for any of this. You'd love to, but you just don't have time. What's he given you? Sabbath. Sabbath. <laughs> Take a day and do nothing. Just, boy, does that go after that thing in the heart. That I'm, I'm I, 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 I can't. Yeah, 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 you can. Because the promise to you is just like fasting. I mean, just like tithing. If you will take a day and rest, God will take the six and work for you. And you'll find you work smarter. You get way more done. 
having sat with him and spent time with him, you are way more effective because the promise is he'll make you ride on the heights. But that's a faith thing, and it's going right at that drive, right at that drive. He's given us tools to tend our hearts so we can keep open to his truth, simplifying our lives. God's often going to ask you to live simple. Get rid of all that stuff. Simplify. You don't need all that. He'll work on that. Serving. What does he say to a proud person, to a, to a person who's all of that? Roll up your sleeves, take a towel, and go wash feet. Go right at our heart. See, he's not just, oh, God, give me the right heart. He says, do these things, you'll have a right heart. Follow me. I'll teach you that way. Would you stand with me? If you want more Coke, what do you have to do? Get rid of the ice. You want more of God, what do you have to do? Get rid of the desires of the world. Holy Spirit, we want to be sons and daughters of Abraham and Sarah. We thank you, Lord, for their example as a man and a woman who, when your truth came, when you spoke, they really paid the price. Oh, God, may we be men and women like that. Jesus Christ, when we hear your truth, we want to hear it and receive it and rejoice in it. We want, your, we want to be people with ears that hear, eyes that see, and soft hearts that receive the seed planted. Receive truth into our hearts. Make us such people, Lord. Teach us each one in our own way, our own disciplines. Help us, Lord, prune the heart and keep it free to believe and to love you. And may we, like Abraham and Sarah, long for a city not made with hands. May that be our passion. May that be our desire to spend eternity with you. Lord, we want a better country. We want to be with you forever. And we want to take as many people with us as we can. We want our lives to be a, a source of love and healing and life everywhere we can. We want to use these days to prepare for those days. So just grace us and give us wisdom. Give us a heart that loves the truth. We make room for it. In Jesus' powerful name. If you agree with me, would you say amen? amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.